episode of my conversation series, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Ainsworth, who's the Vice President of Automation Innovation at Georgia Pacific. Bruce is a champion for utilizing technology to enhance workforce effectiveness in an Industry 4.0 world. We discussed his journey to behavioral science and how Georgia Pacific is taking an innovative approach to worker safety by leveraging behavioral science and AI. So I'd love to talk about uh, your background and hear your story. Yeah, so I'm a chemical engineer and I spent most of my career in chemical plants um, working to optimize chemical processes and helping plants run better and helping the people who run the plants get the information they need to do their jobs more effectively. So I, I started as a chemical engineer because it's pretty much my family's business. I'm a third generation chemical engineer and the other part of my family is all public school teachers. So had a teacher on the back these days, they, they could use some love. And, um, so my dad came to my career fair in third grade and he brought a mock distillation tower that had oil and water in it. And he, he, he explained it all to all his little 10 year olds. And I was just hooked at that point to, to do that. So nothing like the demonstration of science to just, you know, hook the mind and heart of a, of a little kid. I oh love- yeah. Yeah. So from that point forward, I was always focused on becoming a chemical engineer. So I was always interested in chemistry and physics and, and, and all those things. So when I, I graduated college, I I was working in the oil field and the job I had, I was pretty much worked by myself in deep South Texas. And I'd be on these great big ranches working in the gas fields that were in these, these ranches. And so it was like two hours from the highway to the well inside these huge ranches. And then you were generally like six hours away from any other civilization. So taking care of myself and crew became kind of a life or death thing. We didn't like think about it that way, but it really was high risk. So we, we were always making sure the risks we took were in check with the scenarios that we were in. So we always try to be safe, but you know, if, if you don't have someone to tell you what safe looks like, or you, you get comfortable with the situation, you can start taking extreme risks. And, and so that can lead to bad things. So So it's very interesting to hear your journey from, you know, a wide-eyed child seeing the, you know, really interesting process happen of this, uh, you know, this distillation to, you know, a young adult where you start to do that at scale in the field to uh, moving to another role where it's not about the physics, the chemistry, the mechanics of, you know, these processes, but rather the human side of it. 
And you've talked so much about people. You've talked about the relationships, you know, in the diner between, you know, workers and groups of workers. You've talked about uh, the people that you were with out, you know, when you guys were, you know, in the cow fields, essentially, and, and the community that was there. And you've talked about how you needed to start to answer questions around efficiency, but you immediately started to talk about the relationship between efficiency and, and safety. And all of this is around human behavior. And now the new mandate is, you know, includes AI. There's such a convergence of human experience, you know, the history of industrial, uh, the revolution. They were such, at such an interesting point. Yes. Yeah. And, and early on in my supervision, you know, part of the motivation to become a supervisor in the plant was because I wanted, I wanted to tell the people to do what I wanted them to do, because as an engineer, I was seeing these opportunities to let's improve, do this, but I was just advising. And so I was really motivated to become the leader. And then I could drive the plant the way I wanted to drive it. Well, it took about two hours of being the leader to recognize that's not how you lead. And so it takes working with the people and it, it turned into, if you want the plant to run better, you have to get everybody on board with running the plant better. And, and so you can't just tell people what to do. Nobody wants to live that way. And so, you know, it, people want to be challenged and people want to be heard and people want to know that they're making a difference. And the quicker you can recognize that as a leader, the, the quicker you're going to get to success. And I think that's like an obvious thing, but when you're young and you come out of engineering school where no people skills are taught, these are, these became the lessons I really mentored any new engineer on was I didn't, you know, great. You, you can do differential equations and you can balance chemical formulas, but how can you connect an operator to changing a temperature on a vessel will make us a million dollars? Or how can you connect a maintenance person to tie off on a scaffold because if they don't, they could slip and fall a hundred feet and hurt themselves. You know, tell me how you do those things and working with young leaders and future leaders on, on those things became really what I was doing as a leader in the plant. And so you, you think you're going to go work on a distillation column, but in fact, you're really just helping people through their day is what you end up doing. And once you recognize that and you see how it improves people's lives and how they feel better about themselves, it really motivates you to, that's what you want to work on. And so GP is like, 30 times bigger than Coke fertilizer. So it, it gives me the opportunity to work and help that many more people. And so that was a big part of moving from moving to GP. Um, yeah. The, and so as we think about the industrial revolution and we think about 
the demographic change we're seeing in North America, it's becoming more and more critical to, to lead people differently because they are a different group of people than what was there 20 years ago. And so the connecting to people to how they make a difference and connecting people to how you value their, their input really moves to the forefront. It doesn't benefits and, and accolades kind of taking a back seat to this new generation. The newer generations are interested in making a difference in the world. And I think myself is kind of in that way because I think about when I think about the decisions that I'm making and where I'm going with my life, it's to what does the legacy look like? What does when I'm 80 years old and I'm looking back, where did I make a difference and who did I impact? That's really where I'm thinking about when I'm making strategic plans inside my, my day. But, but not only, not only that piece of it, but as the census data is showing us, I'm sure Canada has kind of the same census data where more and more people are moving to urban areas. Well, paper mills and chemical plants are typically not in urban areas. And so how do you, how do you work with the people that are in those areas? How do you attract people to those areas? And then how can you work with less people? That's really the, the big space that my group's working in is how are we dealing with this demographic shift inside our company? Because in 10 years, our company is going to be an entirely different group of people. I mean, we have a majority of people who, you know, because of, of their age, aren't going to be working anymore in 10 years. So addressing the demographic shift was a big motivation for GP to move into the industry 4.0. If we can, because the paper industry has been around for a long time. And so these, these, these mills and these plants have had a steady stream of people, you know, just like me, there's third and fourth generation people in these plants who all work, their whole family has, have worked in these plants. Well, well, those are kind of ending and people are moving to bigger cities. People are getting educations and going and doing different things and getting out of heavy industries. So, so how are we, how are we going to ca capture that lost knowledge? How are we going to, how are we going to change from a people dependent system to a, a system that doesn't necessarily need a person to drive the decision. And so that's, that's where we think using, using AI, using information directly from the equipment and putting that into a system where it doesn't need as many humans to make those decisions. That's, that's kind of what we're shooting for. We're shooting to, to address our, our human capital 
deficit that we're, we're fixing to hit. And so, so we've spent the last five years really engaged in the industry 4.0. And we've, we've, we, we took a lot of steps prior to the pandemic to move work remotely so that we could have engineers in urban centers and not try to keep hiring engineers to be out in rural, rural America. And so, so when the pandemic hit, we were, we were pretty good shape because most of our stuff was had remote access and we had built te- systems that allowed for remote working. So, so industry 4.0 has been good and, you know, there's still opportunity to push it through the rest of our organization and, and figure out new ways to bring a data driven culture into parts of our industry. And so, so our group thinks about things five years ahead of the, the operations group. And so if we think five years ahead, you know, we're going to have less people. We're going to have more data. We're going to have more instrumentation. What, what are some things that we could do to, to get the organization a point of view of what, what 2028 looks like? And so that's, that's kind of what we do in our group and how we're, how we approach the day. We've talked a lot about in the course of our work together is the impact of the, this changing demographics on your, on your worker composition and the increasing reliance that you must have on technology and AI brings us to a point where the need for psychology is perhaps more important than ever because it's not just a matter of of augmenting uh, decision-making through computer-based or data-driven systems, but being able to incorporate behavior science. And it's been very exciting for me to have this these conversations with you, do this work with you, where we bring in the behavioral sciences. But obviously I'd love to hear your point of view on that journey. Yeah. So for me personally, the journey started with, with Moneyball and, and watching the movie and the movie inspired me to read the book. And because at that point in time, that was, you know, eight years ago, I was trying to connect people to the value of data, you know? And so like what we, we sometimes joke about, you know, backing our thoughts with science is sometimes a revelation. And we, we chuckle about that. Um, But that really, you know, that was kind of the start of the journey because it talked about what it took to make a change and, and break the old paradigms. And so, a big piece of innovation is, is not necessarily finding cool technologies. It's more the way I see innovation. It's more about seeing what cool things other people are doing and figuring out how you can do the same thing in a totally different 
space with a totally different group of people. To me, that's the definition of innovation. And so, so seeing what, what the Oakland A's were doing with data and getting and just smashing the old paradigms was something that we were really trying hard to overcome in, in a chemical plant. And so, so once, once you start rolling that snowball, you know, you, you move into other, other books. So we looked at um, the undoing project and, and then that naturally leads into think fast, think, Think slow, think fast. Thinking fast and slow. Thinking fast and slow. <laughs> and then the new book, Noise. And then, um, so that that was my personal journey that got me to you guys. But then kind of at the same time, my team was looking at, my, my GP team before I got here was looking at eye tracking. And they were trying to understand how could we implement this new cool tool into helping safety and how could we use this tool to help with console operators. So a console operator is someone who sits in front of eight computer screens and, and this, each screen has a different section of a processing plant. And each screen probably has 200 data points on it. And most of them are run an automatic or run by some part of the process, but the, the person is there to oversee and intervene if, if needed. And so understanding where their eyes are going and where their attention is, is pretty critical to keeping the plant optimized and keeping people safe. But in addition, we were thinking about eye tracking in forklift drivers to see how they, where their attention was. And so eye tracking isn't really ready for that type of, of use yet, just because the technology isn't there and the software isn't there. But, but the ideas of attention were really intriguing to us. So we were trying to figure out who could help us with attention. And so um, that's how we came across you guys, because you guys were helping some other people in industrial safety and you you were referenced in some of the, the hop literature. And so hop is a new concept for GP and um, helping to put science behind that philosophy is going to go a long way. Cause once you start putting science to a philosophy, then you can, then you can put math to a philosophy. And then once you put math, then you can do engineering and we're a company of engineers and we always want to go back to being engineers. So, so I think humans are going to make mistakes, but what, what is your system doing to overcome those mistakes that humans make? And hop has five principles and the five principles are real key and your audience is probably going to think there's, you know, like no duh when you think about them. But the first principle is human error is normal. You know, everybody makes mistakes. We're all human. So you can't, you can't expect humans to be error free. And so in previous safety cultures, 
or just culture in general, the assumption is humans can be error-free and that's just an incorrect assumption. So you have to get grounded on that principle right off the bat that humans are humans, everybody makes mistakes. And if you think they're not, we need to talk about AI, but we're going to talk about humans still. (laughs) So the second one is blame fixes nothing. So in an investigation, it's easy to, to point the finger. It's easy to, to, to question their judgment at the time. And that doesn't really help anything because if humans are humans and humans make mistakes, the majority of the mistakes aren't going to be malice or intentional. They're probably going to be because a cognitive process is broken down. So, so blame fixes nothing, but if blame, you know, so the adverse to that is the third principle, which is learning is vital. So if you can set up after an incident, when you're reviewing an incident, that this is a learning opportunity and that there's no, you know, if you can get people to trust the investigation and trust that you have their, their good, you know, their goodwill at, I'm trying to think of the right word. If you have their, um, intent, you know, best intentions at heart, they're going to open up to you because they want to learn from the, they don't want to do it either. They don't want to have a repeat of an incident because incidents aren't fun and usually they're life altering and it's not, we don't want to do them. So I think everybody in the room wants to learn from them. So, um, the, a big one that we spend a lot of time with helping the organization with is context. And the fourth principle is called context drives behavior. And yeah. so uh, right in our wheelhouse. Yeah. And so that's fundamental principles, but this is the one obviously that speaks the most to me. Yeah. And this is, this is our biggest opportunity because how do you get people to see context? Cause everybody has their own filters of, of the world. And so if, if I see the world differently than you see the world, are we getting to the right context of the, of the world, so to speak? And then the last principle is how a leader responds to failure matters. And so if anytime you have an incident, you fire everybody, nobody's ever going to talk about their incidents. So, but if anytime there's an incident, the leader is responsive to the needs of the individuals first, then is reflecting upon how they themselves, the leader could make the incident have not occurred and, and really focuses on how can we learn from this? How can we make sure it never happens again? How can we improve our overall system so that not just this one specific thing, but are we moving towards an incident free workplace? You know, so if leaders are responsive that way, the organization as a whole is going to have a, a positive tone to the, to the situation. So 
One of the other things that we've talked about is, um, I mean, first of all, with Moneyball, I very much agree with you. That's just such a, a revolutionary set of insights, not just for baseball, but for the boardroom. And that is the use of data in, in particular statistics in challenging our in intuition, our heuristics by which we, you know, the rules of the game um, that we built through our intuition, through legend, through myth, you know, are not necessarily correct and valid. And one of the things that we can do to challenge that is to have data and patterns of data and have rich statistics that say, hey, that's actually not, not true. Look at these more complex patterns that you know it takes a it takes a computer and it takes the math to to, to surface and to, and to put in our face and moneyball is so powerful and disruptive because of that but it's not everything if the data that's going in is biased or <laughs> the data going in is limited or if the reader of that data is bringing bias to the table then there's only so far that these systems can go. And one of the things that we've talked about is as we employ these systems, we need to make sure that we're not introducing bias into the machine, that we're not reading noise uh, out of the machine. And it's very important if we're going to have thinking and you know, feeling, I say that metaphorically, AI, then we need to have experts in the science of thinking and feeling in the design and in the development of these machines and, of course, their implementation and adoption. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the way we look at, we look at AI in, in two forms. There's, there's the, the popular AI of today that's using huge data sets and can can take an observation from these huge data sets and can answer a question but if the data starts dramatically changing or you need to ask a different question you have to you have to go through that whole process over being that our data we haven't we don't have a whole lot of data that's older than 2 years old and we're not in an industry where there's a million cars on the highway so we can collect a big data set quick. We have, you know, we have 35 paper mills and there's only them. <laughs> so, so it takes a while to make a big data set. So the, so we started looking for AI that didn't necessarily need a large data set. And so what we've, we've found some data that's using natural language processing and cognitive layers to interpret words and to start learning the way people learn. I'm not saying it's anything like a person. It's just using words to, to build algorithms out of the words. And so from those, from those domains and learning that corpus, we're able to ask any question inside that, inside that domain, because it has all of that, knowledge. Now, if we wanted to ask the same question at a different place, we'd have to teach it about that place with a different, whatever the differences are between the two bodies of knowledge. And so 
Yeah. So if we, if we're thinking we're going to teach a machine the way we teach a three-year-old to read, you know, and we're thinking that the machine will be able to answer questions like a four-year-old because it's been reading since it was three, we probably should get people who know how people, how three-year-olds and four-year-olds think so that we can make sure we're being good parents, so to speak to it. And so, you know, getting you guys to help us think through how do we set up these, these databases and how do we ask the question the right way has been a, a novel idea in the AI space, I think. <laughs> so some of the work that we've done so far has been to help expand the point of view that is common around this idea of attention and the going in premise that many people have is all we need to do is increase uh, the attention that people have um, on their job and that'll lead to you know more productivity that'll lead to better safety and so on but our research shows that there's actually kind of some pros and cons with that. Um, on the one hand, if people are too attentive, they might miss out on very obvious things. A really fun example of that is this idea of the invisible gorilla. When people are so mm -hmm. dialed in, there's this idea of too much attention means you're blocking out other things. And this is a very natural process where we get honed in on a specific task and it's very easy for us to miss something that is incredibly obvious. And that seems so surprising, but we've seen this happen time and time again. So dialing in on that attention uh, and understanding the bounds of what attention actually means becomes a very, very complex concept very fast. And then on the other hand, we think, well, if, if all we need to do is, you know, increase attention to improve that productivity or to uh, reduce those mistakes or errors or, you know, perhaps, you know, safety incidents in a, in, you know, a factory environment, we might see that, um, you know, overlooking this fact that mind wandering is a very natural part of the human experience. It's what lets us think, it's what lets us have creativity, it's what lets us you know, function. We're not like robots, our minds need to wander. And a good parallel to that is thinking about how important dreaming is to our sleep. It's unhealthy to deprive the human brain of dreaming at night and disrupting um, REM sleep on a routine basis it becomes very, very unhealthy to an individual. And in the same way, if we constantly snap an individual out of mind wandering, it'll also be, you know, an unhealthy set of expectations on, on human behavior. So these are the things that make, you know, the job very, very complex because it's not as simple as, hey, let's increase people's attention when we know that even just this one phenomena, this one aspect of the human experience has very complex and, and nuanced components to it. So these are the kinds of, you know, not inconsequential challenges that we're working on together. Yeah. So 99% of the time, 
they're watching, you know, we, we make a lot of toilet paper. They're watching toilet paper move down an assembly line, so to speak. If you think about the Laverne and Shirley thing with the bottles, that's what we have in our factories. It's just with toilet paper and paper towels. And so 99% of the time, you know, the song is just singing and, you know, they're dancing around the factory. I'm joking. That's not what they do. They, they, they're very serious about, there's no dancing in the paper mill, I promise. But, um, that 1% of the time when they need to interact with the machines is the most dangerous point in their day and could change their lives. But because those one percents happen in the you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time of the one percent of the time nothing happens you know you can you can start lowering your risk around the interaction with the equipment or you have these other pressures coming at you that make you need to alter the the right way to interact with the machine. And so, so I think what, if we could help people right before they need to interact with the machine, you know, quickly get refocused on I'm interacting with the machine. It's kind of dangerous, but I've done it before. So if I just do what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to be okay. If we can help people get tuned back in right before they need to do that interaction, that is the hypothesis we think will lead to error, you know, incident free workplace. And so, you know, we're working with you guys on how can we build an experiment because we don't, we're, we make toilet paper. We don't do science experiments. So we're working with you guys to help us figure out what do those human experiments look like and how can we, how can we find in a data set? When is the point that we need to get people re-engaged with the environment? Because like you said, if, if we can do that and we can allow people to daydream and let their minds wander, they're going to have a more fulfilled day because they're not stressed out and focused, you know, cause anybody who focuses a long time on something generally gets a headache after 10 minutes of really focusing on something. At least I do. I don't know if I'm weird or something, but, but yeah, I mean, so that's, that's the key is if, we're, we're coming to a, a point where we can get technology to aid the people at the right point in time so that they can be incident free. Absolutely. And part of this journey has actually even just been studying the data and helping the organization have a fuller sense of the data and helping sort out the noise from the the truer patterns and we've seen some we've seen some interesting things and we've seen some counterintuitive things i think we helped uncover um, some patterns in the data that seem to show that we've got some periods where there tends to be 
a greater spike in incidents. And it was, it was tough to, it was tough to see that, you know, at face value in the data. And we, we helped you to uncover that. And part of the thing that's going to be interesting is like, hmm, if Wednesday mornings is a time where there might be a greater likelihood of an incident, you know, do we just simply put in an intervention Wednesday mornings, you know, be more careful today, you know, but the challenge is we don't want to just, we don't just want to pop that in intervention in uh, without that experimental framework, because, you know, if it works, that's incredible. And we want to see what variations of intervention are required to help workers become more safe in their behavior without adapting to it, or, you know, perhaps even a, a, a smaller success, uh, having, having them pay attention to it or ignore it, or them never register uh, that intervention in the first place. But that teasing out the uh, noise from the real phenomena has been, uh, you know, it's, it's been pretty data intense, but it's it's let us bring uh, behavior and, and data science together. Yeah, and it allows us to start the conversation about what on, like you said, the example is just Monday, Wednesday morning. We can sit down with people and say, what does Wednesday morning look like to you guys? Or, or you know, talk to the leadership team about what, what do you guys do on Wednesdays that's different than Fridays, you know? And then you can start that conversation and empower the people who is being impacted to make their own change. So, you know, if you can help people change themselves by themselves, that's way more powerful than me, the guy who sits at the corporate office, writing up a, a procedure and handing it to you and walking away. So, you know, it will, it will stick and it will make them recognize and learn something about their environment that could improve their, their overall performance and safety and production. So, yeah. It is very data intense and it's, it takes an outside person to think about it and bring a new perspective to, to the data insight. So it's been very helpful. Bruce, I could keep talking with you. Um, I know that we have gone a little bit over time. Um, so I want to say thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I look forward to us having another one. There was a lot to talk about here. And I look forward to us having the opportunity to share the learnings. Um, I, th I think it's probably okay for me to reveal that we're doing some very groundbreaking work, very pioneering work that hasn't been done anywhere else, bringing together uh, behavioral science with data science, artificial intelligence, engineering, uh, all to help improve worker safety. So I'm very excited about the continued journey that we have together. And I know that you are open to sharing some of these insights that will help you know, transform the economy and the principles of worker safety. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I look forward to future conversations. You know, Anybody who works with anybody else should be concerned about the well-being of those around them. And, you know, nobody, 
nobody wants to see bad things happen to other people and toilet paper isn't something people should be dying over. And so if, if we can do one thing that does one helps one person, I think we've made a difference. So thanks. And we'll keep working at it. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thank you.